1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Gillian Glace, the author of African Political Activism in Postcolonial France, State Surveillance and Social Welfare. And the book was published by Routledge in 2019. Hi there, Gillian. Hi there. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here. Could you get us started by telling us a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France originally?
2: Well, I'm originally from Montana and I went to the University of Montana as an undergraduate and then to the University of Oregon for my master's and to the University of Wisconsin Madison for my PhD. And as an undergraduate, I was a French language major and I spent time in France and I also did a history major. And when I came back from Europe, I somehow thought that I would never get to go back to Europe unless I pinned my professional life to Europe and France. Not really that you could travel to Europe for fun. <laughs> so I went to the University of Oregon to study French history, and I didn't really have much of a focus. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, and then I took a seminar on the economic history of France, and I did a paper on Polish and Italian workers in France in the interwar period, and I found that fascinating in terms of immigration and migration. And then that summer, my advisor, George Sheridan, made me take summer school and I was not happy about it. <laughs> but I took the seminar with a visiting faculty member from Denmark named Ulf Hedetoft, And he really transformed my life in so many different ways. Hmm. And One of the ways that he did was the seminar was focused entirely on migration and immigration. And it really opened up a whole new area of inquiry for me. So at that point, I realized I wanted to do my master's thesis on something related to immigration. In France, and I chose Algerians and questions of citizenship in the post war era. And then when mm-hmm. I got to Wisconsin, a few different things happened. Um, first of all, my advisor, Laird Boswell, said, I think that maybe you should work on something other than Algerians because there are a lot of people working on Algerians, and choosing a different group might help you to distinguish yourself. And I thought, well, that's a good idea. And then I also started to do a minor in African history, and I brought together the two fields through a focus on African immigrants in France.
1: You begin the book, Gillian, with the saint Riot, a riot that I'm just going to admit I didn't know about, um, that happened in 1963. And it's really an important moment that you enter the project with. So I think we should just start there. If you could tell us about the saint Riot and how it works for you in this study as a, as a point of entry.
2: Absolutely. So what happened was that um, July 22nd of 1963, uh, there were a group of Algerian and Mauritian immigrants who really got into, I mean, you could call it a riot. There are some racial connotations to doing that. You could call it a brawl, which sounds more like um, kind of a fight. Mm -hmm. And it had stemmed from just kind of a discussion that was going on in one of the, the local establishments there. And the situation grew really violent really quickly, and the two sides definitely exchanged blows. There were some weapons involved. Um, People actually got injured and were taken to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And there had been a few instances in the late 1950s where conflicts like this occurred as well. It really sort of underscored the idea for authorities and onlookers that perhaps violence could become more common and It also raised some questions about African immigrants in particular because Algerians had really been viewed by authorities as the ones who were perhaps uh, more inclined to violence in part because of the Algerian conflict Mm. and West Africans were seen as less inclined to violence. And there are a lot of racial connotations to that as well. And so this riot sort of called that into question as well. So I realized that I wanted to tell the story of this riot because I thought that it pointed to some broader tensions and anxieties amongst immigrant communities themselves and particularly relationships between um, different groups of immigrants from the African continent and non-Western immigrants. But I also thought that it really showed the different ways in which sectors of French society responded to the presence of African immigrants and, and other types of immigrants. And I thought that the riot would make an interesting chapter. And When I was going through the manuscript revision process, a colleague of mine suggested that it could be a preface and that it could
1: really draw readers into the story itself. In the introduction, Gillian, um, you outline the kind of three main issues that the book focuses on. The activisms, a range of different types of political activity of African immigrant communities, growing state surveillance over the period covered in the book, and social welfare programs that emerged. And I guess I have some really broad questions about the project in terms of the interventions that you see the book making with respect to, well, let's just start with the history of post-colonial France and, you know, this idea that you come back to again and again of tracing a history of the emergence of a neo-colonial France in the 1960s and 70s.
0: I really
2: think that thinking about France as post colonial is as important as thinking about the places that decolonize. So I think that's one issue that I was trying to highlight in a lot of different ways. I really thought about how it was that this book could bring in the conversation about colonialism from both the West African side, the AOF side, and the French side, and think about how the process of decolonization itself and the politics of colonialism themselves could really help me to navigate what happened with the African immigrant community after 1960. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that's one of the, the interventions, as you said, that I think the book makes. It really highlights the connections between those eras instead of seeing 1960 as a rupture where we just end colonialism completely, and those ideas and those mentalities and those policies just fall by the wayside, what I saw in the sources was that they definitely strongly continued. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to really explore that from not only the African perspective in terms of the ways in which African immigrants used different kinds of colonial organizational tactics in the 1960s and into the 1970s, but also how it was that French authorities responded and how that could be seen through a colonial lens, even in the post-colonial era.
1: Now, Gillian, I think most listeners will get why this project starts in 1960 and why 1960 is an important year when we're thinking about um, African decolonization. But maybe just for those people who might not know, why 1960?
2: Right. So 1960 is the year that several of France's colonies in AOF gain independence. And it's really the moment where um, France loses its official footing in West Africa. Through the development of various policies after decolonization, one could make the argument, and rightfully so, that France still enacts a lot of control and a lot of influence in the region. But 1960 marks a pivotal moment in terms of France's loss of control of the region. And so I thought that it would be interesting to start the project there And then what's interesting is that you have immigration from the AOF colonies across the 1950s, and you have obviously important connections from a migratory perspective prior to that. But there starts to be an uptick of African immigrants coming to France after 1960, and I thought that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. As Frederick Cooper has said in conversations that I've had with him, their status in terms of citizenship was really murky. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they've got a new nationality, but some of them still have French citizenship. So it's not as if the right to travel to France was really clear cut. That's not necessarily what was drawing them, but there were a lot of economic opportunities that they were pursuing. And so I thought it would be interesting to look at that migratory pattern in that community. Really, the book sort of ends in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And across those two decades... African workers and African immigrants don't have the right really to organize formally under French law. They don't have uh, the right to form organizations. Mm. Only French citizens do. And so those like Sally Ndongo who had French citizenship because of colonial citizenship could create organizations, but many couldn't. And so I thought it would be interesting to look at that period politically for African immigrants because their situation was so tenuous in terms of being able to form official organizations through which they could channel a lot of their um, political desires and their political will.
1: It was interesting to me when you were talking about your own trajectory that you talked about becoming interested early on in issues of immigration and mobility. And so I wonder, I mean, you are focused on Africans from French West Africa or former West, French West Africa or AOF in this book, but do you see a way in which this book makes a contribution to a kind of broader history of immigration, mobility? Absolutely.
2: I think that's such an important question because I think so often when we're working on our project and we're working on a particular nation state, we get so focused on that place. And mm-hmm. for me, so focused on Paris and its um, surrounding communities. And we don't often think about the implications of that project for other places. When I think back to working on it, and I think now about the book, I think about the fact that there, there are two things that I think it contributes. I think it really underscores and highlights the fact that immigrants and whatever their status is, whether they're economic migrants or whether they're refugees or asylum seekers or educational migrants or people who are migrating for healthcare care reasons, migrants have agency. And I think there's a whole body of scholarship that shows that, but I wanted my book to really underscore that and really underscore that for a population that was often ascribed very little agency. When I looked at the sources, oftentimes administrators and other people within the French government were very convinced that Africans from the former AOF were apolitical. And what I wanted to show was that that simply wasn't the case, that there were several instances in which they were highly political. And so that agency piece I thought was really important and and certainly can be applied to other groups and other countries in a whole host of different ways. And secondly, I thought it was really interesting to think about how it is that nation states respond to immigrant populations. And here you actually have a nation state in France that has a very interesting history of immigration, but not a comfortable relationship with that history. And mm. Gerard Noyel and many other people have shown that France's memory of its own migratory past does not function like the one in the, in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it's only been recently that that past, and by recently I mean, you know, 25 or 30 years now, um, it's only recently that that past has been something that French society and French politics and other areas has been willing to explore. So I think it's really important to show that different migratory patterns and different immigrant groups shape policy and shape the ways in which nation states see those groups, but also the ways in which nation states see themselves.
1: Something you just said is a nice segue into another question that I have for you, Gillian, which is about how this book is, you know, a history of racism and anti-racism and I think it was when you were talking about noailles and the, the kind of different relationship that France has to its own immigrant past and I guess the broad question that I would ask you is you know what the specific challenges have been working on racism well on race <laughs> racism anti-racism in the French context where you know the universalism script means that this is an area that even scholars sometimes, aren't as um, keen or open to treating as such? The challenges have been numerous. It's (laughs) really
2: interesting to think back on that. This book was a journey on so many different fronts. And Mm. as a young graduate student, as a a PhD candidate doing research, I ran into many different scholars who questioned the validity of the project, who Mm. told me that I wouldn't find Africans in the archives who didn't think that African immigrants were important enough to work on, who didn't really want to talk to me about issues of race or or racism or anti-racism. Now, that wasn't the case universally, and I did find a community of scholars Mm. who obviously were very excited about the project and who encouraged me, Catherine Vito de Venden, most notably, and others But it was really hard. And I think one of the things that was hard was that America and the United States has its own very uncomfortable past and present when it comes to race and racism. Mm. But I was, I guess I would say I learned a lot about how other cultures function in that regard and that other cultures don't, that every culture has its own way of dealing with these sorts of things. And so what I realized is that I, I needed to get into the archives and see what, was ra- really in there. And when I did that, I saw that what was in there was a lot of connections to the colonial past. Mm-hmm. And that there were discussions of language, use of language that really connected to colonial ways of thinking about race. And that even when we say that France is a, a country of universal values, as you mentioned, and universalism and ideas, you know, connecting to the French Revolution, that race and racism was alive and well in those sources and mm-hmm. that there are populations as Dominic Thomas and others have shown of people with an immigrant past today in France that feel very dislocated, that feel quite alienated. And And I, my hope was that this book could be part of the historiography to demonstrate how we got to that place that we're in today in France. And so I think that it's really fascinating to work in a context where race is not discussed in the same way and to kind of point to the ways in which race is used. And I think one of my most interesting moments was when I was talking with my advisor and I said, yeah, you know, they're, they're listing the different ethnicities of these different African immigrants as they're coming in and they're doing statistical breakdowns of those populations. And he said, I don't think they're supposed to do that. And technically they're not, and this was, the, these sources actually came before a law was passed in the 1970s where that became illegal, but that's when I realized that I was onto something in mm-hmm. terms of how it was that the French state was keeping track of these different groups, and not only these different groups in terms of nationality, but also of different ethnicities, which also sort of harked back to the colonial era when there was really a, a focus and a concentration on that from so many different ways. They even used the same terms that were used in the colonial context as they did in the metropolitan context, like instead of Sony K, which is an ethnicity in West Africa, they used Sarah which was definitely a, a colonial term. So it was, it was a really interesting project in that regard and, and hard, very hard at different times. And I think that Jennifer Boaton and other people who've worked on similar kinds of issues have run into similar kinds of challenges. And so, um, my sense is it's probably getting better, but um, but nonetheless, yeah. it was definitely there and something that I had to work through.
1: Gillian, you know, doing a project on African immigrants, of course, that means talking about race, but it also means talking about labor. And so, I guess I wonder, you know, how you think about this project as a as a labor history and uh, contribution. You know, whether it's with specific reference to African workers, but also just even more broadly, like how do you think of yourself as a labor historian or somebody who works on work?
2: That's a great question. And I have a funny story about that. Actually, when I first started graduate school, I worked with a labor historian, George Sheridan, and I got to graduate school at Oregon. And he said, do you want to be a labor historian? And I said, no, I don't (laughs) even know what that means, but I don't think I want to be a labor historian. And I think he was a little crestfallen,
1: but... He won. (laughs)
2: Exactly, right. And thinking about the project, you're absolutely right. I'm dealing with people who were in France predominantly for labor-related reasons, right? They were there because they were seeking employment and they worked in a whole host of areas of the French economy, metallurgy, construction primarily, factories, but also in other ways as well. And so I guess I don't think of myself... As a labor historian, because I'm more interested in issues related to political activism, to the political Mm -hmm. sphere, to the government response, to issues like surveillance and colonialism and how that intersects with republicanism and identity. But at the heart of this, this is a story about workers. And I tried hard to not lose sight of that. And that's Mm -hmm. part of the reason that I tried to sort of paint a picture of what. These different immigrants' lives were like and to talk about the different areas in which they worked and the important contributions that they made. If you look at one of the Renault factories in Bilancourt, just outside of Paris in the Mm -hmm. early 1960s to the mid-1960s, the majority of the workers at that factory were from West Africa and also from North Africa. So it's impossible to ignore the very rich history of immigrant workers in France and to ignore the the working lives of the immigrant groups that I was really working on. And I also think that their working conditions are part of the story because they were pretty desperate and pretty dire and they experienced quite a bit of racism in the workplace. Often African immigrants were viewed as the least desirable immigrant group to hire in places like automobile manufacturing and others. And so they were treated very poorly. There were often sort of lists of desirable immigrant groups that I would see in the archives and Africans were always listed last and then Mm -hmm. Algerians and North Africans and then different groups of European immigrants. So the discrimination and the racism that fueled the political activism that I talk about is linked directly to the employment experiences that African immigrants had. And that's so interesting too, because I found a lot of contradictions in the story. And one of the contradictions is that many different French organizations, businesses, companies went to the former AOF to recruit workers. Mm. And I've not seen a lot of sources on that. I think a lot of those sources are probably in places like Dakar. But I do know they went and they specifically brought back workers to work in their. you know, their factories and other places, but then treated them very poorly. And so um, I did try really hard to sort of always keep that in the back of my mind. And that then was paired with a lot of problems with housing, a lot of problems with disease and dislocation, and also missing home and feeling separated from family and feeling isolated. And so all of that was wrapped into the experience that I was really trying to unpack and to discuss in the book
1: you mentioned earlier gillian that you you know that there's a kind of paris and its region focus here and i guess i wanted to just ask about geographic scope just get you to say a little bit more about that and how you're working throughout the book with the bonnieux and thinking about this as kind of like an urban and not suburban i know that's not the right word but urban and extension project that's one of the things that was so
2: interesting about the research process, because I don't think that I set out specifically to write a book about Paris, but then all of a sudden I realized hmm, I wrote a book about Paris. And <laughs> one of the reasons that I did that is that that's where really the majority of African immigrants coming to France at this time settled. They settled in other places too, like Marseille um, and Lavra and other you no, know, other important port towns and other regions. But this is really the locus of the mm. community. This is where the community was really politically active. This is where a lot of the different organizations that formed across the 1960s existed. Paris also had a really important connection to the interwar period in terms of the different workers and artists and intellectuals and writers who came and live there as Tyler Stovall and others have highlighted, Jennifer Blatton. Mm-hmm. So I think it's sort of a continuation of that story of what it was that African immigrants were doing in that area of France after decolonization. But it also demonstrates how Paris really is this incredibly vibrant city of immigrants. And a lot of scholars have highlighted that. Importantly, so, but I don't know that we always think of Paris in those terms. It's a very Paris and the Benue specific history as well, but I think it does reflect a lot of the things that go on in terms of different immigrant groups in larger cities all throughout the world. Mm. and I think it has a lot to say about how urban spaces shape mobilization and also inhibit it. One mm-hmm. of the things that happens that I talk about at the end of the book is how the French government tried to break up Networks of sociability and different African immigrant networks by relocating different mm. groups of immigrants all around um, the metropolitan area, and I found that really fascinating in terms of how French authorities were trying to control the space of Paris and how they were trying to determine where it was and where it wasn't that African immigrants lived. And I think that that's part of a broader story of of the fact that immigrants come to places where. They are already established oftentimes if they have a say in where they're settling. And the more immigrants that go to a place, the more established that community becomes and the more attractive it becomes to other immigrants. And so, one of the attractions of going to a place like Paris was that there was this long standing, well established African immigrant community going back decades and generations. And so, the most recent arrivals in the 1960s were very much drawn to the capital city because they Mm -hmm. knew people. They could get information on housing. They could get help in figuring out where to possibly get a job. They could learn where they could take French courses if they didn't speak French and many of them did not. And so it's also this story of, of how it is that immigrants are drawn to a particular place, why they settle there, why they stay there, and also sometimes why they leave there.
1: Well, what you were just saying, Gillian, makes me think about, you know, Doing this podcast, I read books about all kinds of things, <laughs> and as I'm reading them, I connect in my mind to something I may have maybe read like a few months ago or a couple of years ago. And so, when I was reading your book, I connected to to Kate Keller's work on on AOF uh, and colonial surveillance and suspicion, but also to some of the work that I've looked at over the years or maybe read for other things, not just the podcast on the kind of international history work that looks at, I'm thinking of Michael Goebbels' work and other people, like the, the idea that Paris is this kind of clearinghouse and a meeting place for all of these people, and that it connects to a broader international, a global history of activism, mobility, uh, all, all, all these other sorts of things. So when you, at different points in the project, talk about a global Black radical tradition or how, what's going on in This book connects to like an international discourse of human rights or the Cold War. I kind of see your book in relationship to those other types of projects, too. Do you have that feeling about it? Am I imposing that on you?
2: No, I would be honored if people took that away (laughs) from the book. Absolutely. I think one of the things that I started to think about... With this project was this idea of Pan-Africanism and whether or not Pan-Africanism spanned into the post-colonial era. And I've had ups and downs with that idea. And, you know, some people say yes, some people say no. What I do think is that it does connect, as you said, to the global Black radical tradition. I actually had the honor of teaching a class with that title. And I wanted in the book to really highlight the activism of African immigrants as part of this broader dialogue and discourse and activism that we see throughout the post-war era and throughout the post-colonial era, and then connect it to the Cold War. And the Cold War is really everywhere in the sources, Mm -hmm. especially as you get closer to the 1970s and into the late 1960s. Suddenly authorities are seeing African immigrants as Maoists, and they're seeing them as Radicalizing members of the Communist Party, and they're worried about these communist connections. And so I think that in terms of setting it within that Cold War context, it's really mm-hmm. an important aspect of the project.
1: So, Gillian, I want to get into talking about the chapters of the book. So, let's start with the Union Générale des Travailleurs Senegalais en France, UGTSF, and its founder, Sally Nongo.
2: One of the things that was so interesting about the UGTSF is that there were sources about them. And one of the things that was so interesting about this group is not only did I find them in the archives, but they there were published sources about them. Uh, Francois Mispero actually published several books pertaining to the UGTSF in the 1970s. And so that was incredibly helpful. Sally mm. Andongo himself was very well published as a writer, gave all kinds of interviews both on television and radio. And so that was really helpful. And so this was an organization that for me did a few different things. One thing that it did was that it it was structured in a way that related not only to interwar unions and political organizations created in France by African workers and others, but also in AOF. And so that was a really important connection to me we talked a little bit about the work of Frederick Cooper and others, but I, I read a lot of his work and i looked at a lot of the things that people had been talking about in AOF. And I saw a lot of the echoes of those kinds of unions in the UGTSF and other groups. And so I wanted to spotlight the UGTSF as that more formal kind of traditional form of political organization and an organization mm-hmm. that not only created a space of sociability for different immigrants in terms of bringing them together and allowing them to meet one another and, and to network that way, but also one that really spotlighted, especially in the 1960s, the very difficult circumstances that African immigrants endured. And so a lot of the work of UDTSF across the 1960s was really pertaining to issues like education, providing literacy courses, Addressing housing problems, addressing employment issues, talking about the discrimination that African immigrants experience. And then the organization becomes more political by the end of the 1960s and into the 1970s and starts discussing issues like neocolonialism. I just thought it was really a, a fascinating organization, an organization that one could tell a story around. And it had really interesting characters like. Sally Ndongo. And and Ndongo came to France in the late 1950s and ended up working um, in southern France and was in a a rather exploitive situation and then went to Paris. And he became probably one of the biggest and most visible African activists of his era. Mm -hmm. I think he was really a critical figure within the African immigrant community not only as an organizer, but also as an activist and as an advocate. And he was also an incredible intellectual. He, as I said, he he wrote voluminously. He published quite a bit. He wrote his, uh, his memoir. He became more and more affiliated with groups in France, especially by the 1970s that were considered radical. He attended all kinds of conferences. He was under heavy surveillance. He just his life Mm -hmm. did all of the things that I was hoping to find once I realized what the project was really about. And so he really becomes a key player um, Mm -hmm. in the book and and obviously a key player in this organization.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: The second chapter of the book, Gillian, focuses on this Ivry rent strike in 1969. So can you just give us a bit of context and information about that strike, who was involved, and why it's so significant? So the ivory rent strike takes place in the late
2: 1960s in a dormitory um, in Ivory that had been an old chocolate factory interesting enough and it had been converted without really the city of Ivory knowing much about this to a dormitory that was supposed to hold a few hundred African workers and this was very common Um, there were these dormitories Mm. that would be set up in sort of a makeshift manner and they were to house African workers and then there would be more workers who would come and they would become overcrowded and they would basically become these bidonvilles and the living conditions within them would deteriorate rather quickly. And that's exactly what happened in Ivry. So um, the situation had become basically untenable. At one point, over 500 workers lived in this dormitory and the landlord was perhaps lacking in scruples. And so the residents got really frustrated with the situation and they went on strike. And this actually happened all throughout the Paris region. There were rent Mm -hmm. strikes all over uh, the banlieue in Paris uh, in different dormitories. And so I made the decision to tell the story of this particular rent strike in part because I had the sources to do so between the Ivory Municipal Archives and the Ivory Departmental Archives. There was actually a ton of material on this rent Mm -hmm. strike more than I could probably have processed in a lifetime. (laughs) And I probably could have written a whole book on each of these chapters, it turns out. Mm. So I decided to really try to go in depth with this rent strike to try to illustrate, again, the agency that African immigrants had taken, the sort of highly organized nature of this strike, the the way in which it played out, um, the response of the state. I thought all of that was really fascinating and I thought it would make Mm -hmm. for a really good story that showed the sort of important tactics that African immigrants use to draw attention to themselves. And one of the only tactics available to them, if they couldn't organize politically except with, you know, the help of citizens like Ndongo who held French citizenship and they were highly frowned upon for doing things like rioting, as we see in the St. Denis preface that caused Mm a lot of problems. And if they, you know, could lose their jobs for going on strike in a traditional sense, then a a rent strike was a way that they could convey their demands and draw attention to their situation while still continuing to go to work, um, while hopefully not being deported from France, which was always a risk and always a concern.
1: The third chapter of the book, Gillian, explores another episode that is no less compelling, but you know, more tragic, I guess, in its um, outcome, these five deaths in Aubervilliers. Can you tell us about that?
2: One of the things that sort of drove the book in terms of especially those first three chapters plus the preface was that I kept seeing mentions of these different events, like I would see a mention of the St. Denis riot, or I would see a mention of the Ivory strike, or I would see a mention of the Obrevilliers situation, but I would never really know what happened. And I wanted Mm. to learn more. And so I started to realize that those were the stories that I wanted to tell because they hadn't really been told before. And so what happens in Obrevilliers is in January of 1975, African immigrants essentially asphyxiate um, one night Mm. and they're found dead in their dormitory and that had happened before this was not the first time that it would happen and it's not the last time it it has Mm -hmm. happened since then it's happened recently but there was something about this particular moment that morphed into this sort of national moment of um, mourning and of coming to terms with some of the situations around human rights as we talked about around The condition of different immigrant groups in France. And one of the things that I found most interesting is that I started to think about what it's like to be an immigrant and to die in another country. What do you do with Mm. that? Especially if you're also an immigrant and your friend, your coworker, your roommate has passed away. Like, how do you mark that development? What do you do with the body? How do you? mourn? How do you grieve, especially when you're not within your own culture? And I started to think about these broader issues. And so I started to do research on things like funeral practices in West Africa and how it is that immigrant groups mourn. And if there was scholarship on this, this is a chapter that I had written for the original dissertation, but dropped out for a variety of reasons. And then I came back to it and realized that this was telling another version of that political agency story that I wanted to tell. And one of the reasons I wanted to tell this story is not only because the funeral and the protests that followed were, were fascinating and, and I thought important, but also because all of these different, very famous French intellectuals and writers get involved in the situation mm-hmm. from Jean-Paul Sartre to Simone de Beauvoir, to Marguerite Duras, they all show up and they're all in support of the surviving African immigrants. They lend their name to the cause and I thought, wow, that is such a change from 1960 where really hardly anyone was paying attention to the situation outside of the authorities who were charged to do so. Mm-hmm. And it also shows that there are life and death consequences to immigration policy. There are life and death consequences to the choices that nation states make as far as how it is that they receive immigrants, how it is that they treat immigrants, uh, where immigrants are housed, how they're housed, what kind of lives they have. A state plays a role in that, a very important role, and, and a state can make choices in that regard. And so I think here you see the better part of 10 years or more of the sort of haphazard policies, not a lot of cohesion, not necessarily a lot of attention paid to trying to sort this out and and the result is actually death and and it happens in a moment where France itself is sort of at a huge turning point you know 1968 Mm -hmm. happened and it had happened about a year and a half ish um, before this and so obviously France is in a moment where it's sort of still Reconceptualizing its place in the world. It's dealing with the aftermath of 1968 and with other pressures as well. And so I think that with the dawn of a new decade, you know, one of the things I was thinking about as I was looking through the sources and writing the chapters that you sort of have this new hope, you sort mm. of have this new invigorated sort of outlook on the world. And so this happens right at the outset of 1970, which suggests that maybe. The new decade is not all that it's cracked up to be. And it's not necessarily a a new decade of hope. But we know that the 1970s for France was challenging in a lot of different ways. And so I think that this in some ways is kind of that early indication that things might not go as planned for this decade. And it's another way in which I think that African immigrants are able to draw attention to their situation and, and to have that agency. And I think that doing that through a mourning process is really fascinating Mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways.
1: So the second part of the book focuses on state responses, uh, surveillance, welfare initiatives, these kinds of things. And in that fourth chapter, you really are focused on the question of the surveillance of African immigrants and their activism. So what's going on here and how do you kind of get at what the state is doing uh, in that fourth chapter?
2: I wanted to sort of better understand how it was that African immigrants were policed, why it was they were policed that way, and what the ramifications were. And so I found that, you know, individuals like Ndongo were very much under surveillance. There were all kinds of insinuations about leftists who were infiltrating these African groups. And I thought that was interesting because I started to think, like, do authorities only see africans as political if they're being influenced by outside sources that's interesting and that mm. suggests a lot about how authorities were reading african immigrants in the first place to what extent were they projecting these anxieties onto african immigrants and to what extent were they actually there and i think that also connects to the issue that we talked about earlier in terms of the cold war right especially as the 1960s were on and we get into the 1970s We see a lot of authorities and a lot of officials really concerned about communist ties between African immigrants and the PCF, African immigrants and Maoist organizations. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this idea of surveillance not only connects to earlier moments and periods of surveillance of different African populations, but also allows us to see the tensions and anxieties that the arrival and establishment of a post-colonial African immigrant community reflected. And so it's just really sort of fascinating to see how it was that different state organizations um, read these immigrants and the different kinds of conclusions they drew. And so a lot of the, the developments that I talked about earlier in the book, like Obrevillier, Rent Strike, all of those things were in the surveillance files. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you as you go through the sources from the early 60s, late 60s into the 70s, what they're looking at changes. In the Mm -hmm. early 1960s, they're largely talking about ethnicity and talking about nationality and essentially providing numbers. You know, this many immigrants live in this place, this number of immigrants lives in this place. It's pretty mellow, for lack of a better (laughs) word. It's just kind of, they're just sort of counting immigrants. And then because of things like the Saint-Denis riot, because of the emergence of organizations like the UGTSF and spokespeople like Ndongo, because of you know heightened tensions around the Cold War and other issues, it, it becomes much more political by the late 1960s and much more sort of visceral. One key difference in terms of the interwar period in France and in AOF is that I didn't see a lot of the kinds of infiltration that Kate Keller talks about in her book or that other people have discussed, I didn't see a lot of agents recruited from the African side to then work for the French state. Either I missed those files entirely. Right. It's possible that they didn't let me see them because of the derogation process. There were a couple files that I, I applied for repeatedly. And a very nice man in the Ministry of Interior finally told me it was time to stop, that that my case had gone as far as it could, (laughs) and that I would never be seeing those files, which made me wonder what was in them. I I still sometimes think about that.
1: So, Gillian, I I kind of don't want to ask you, but then I also feel like I have to ask you the the archival grain question, (laughs) as I call it, about these police surveillance documents and how you work with them and... How do you deal with what you're reading in this stuff that is obviously inflected with some of the same kinds of concerns, questions, injustices, racisms that you're also writing about? Do you want to say anything about that? You can tell me no, if you want to. No, I think it's really
2: hard. And I've, I've struggled with it. Um, You know, the first draft of my dissertation, my advisor was like, these are great sources. You have no story here. (laughs) Um, you need to like bring in the secondary literature. You need to really contextualize it. I completely agreed with him, especially after revisiting it. So I think it's really hard. And I think so often we can take on the voices of our sources if we're not careful. And in, in this situation where you're, the sources themselves are racist in some ways, in many ways, Mm -hmm. um, you have to be really careful to not then reflect that in your own analysis. Mm -hmm. I think one of the reasons I wanted to write the surveillance chapter is that I wanted to unpack for myself, but also for readers for the project, how it was that various authorities were talking about these groups.
1: So we've talked a lot about you know, housing and work, and maybe a little bit less about the health side of things so far in this conversation, Gillian, but that fifth chapter of yours focuses on tuberculosis disease um, and the social welfare initiatives developed in response to, you know, this population and the creation of the Centre Bossuet. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? The Centre Bossuet opened in
2: 1963 in the 10th arrondissement of Paris, and it was a center, a healthcare clinic that opened only for African immigrants. It did Mm. not, its mission statement was not to care for Algerians or Portuguese immigrants or any other immigrant group. Certainly if they showed up, I don't think the clinic turned anyone away. That was fine, but it was designed entirely for African immigrants. And it opened at a time when there wasn't that much within state policy that was designed entirely for African immigrants. In fact, as Amelia Lyons book shows, there was a lot of focus on Algerians. And it also showed that the state was really worried about disease amongst this population in addition to disease amongst immigrant populations in general, and Mm -hmm. that tuberculosis was an illness um, that the clinic focused on that was one that immigrants and African immigrants also really struggled with. And so... Uh, I think what the Santer Bosway chapter tries to do is it tries to show how the state was responding to some of the various challenges that African immigrants were experiencing early on. And then there were some really interesting colonial connections. Um, the building had been controlled by one of the colonial ministries, and the first administrator of the clinic was a former colonial administrator. Mm-hmm and it also showed a really interesting change over time in the early 1960s and across the 1960s most african immigrants who came to france were male right. and they were on their own they weren't necessarily single some of them were married and had you know wives and children at home but they were on their own or they were single um, and came to france french immigration law actually changes in the 1970s and family reunification becomes part of immigration law so that if you were someone living in France, you were able to bring your wife and your children um, there as well. And so by the 1970s, the clinic is seeing a lot more women, is seeing children and is doing things like providing gynecological exams and advising Mm -hmm. uh, women on things like nutrition in France the difficulties of navigating a healthcare system and illness and disease when you're an immigrant are are profound. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was really interesting that there was a clinic that was designed to do just that for African immigrants. Um, And so it sort of gave me a window into their lives. It also became really fascinating in terms of a a space for African immigrants to
1: interact. Like
2: Mm -hmm. they were really devastated when the clinic closed.
1: So the sixth Chapter Gillian focuses on the movement of African immigrants, and you talk about the anti Bidonville campaigns. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. One of the things that I first noticed when
2: I started to dive into the the sources was that there were all of these relocations happening, and they were not only relocating African immigrants—that happened to be my focus—but they were relocating other groups as well, and they were sort of shuffling them around the Paris region. And I started to realize that there was a story to be told in terms of state policy that dovetailed with this policing piece and the opening of the center that demonstrated that this was another instance in which the state was responding to African immigrants, especially those who were on strike and doing other things as well. But in this instance, instead of assisting the immigrant community through a center like busway they were actually actively working to break it up. Hmm. So they were literally moving populations from place to place, putting them in various locations that didn't have as high of a concentration of African workers in the hopes that this would break up some of the activism and some of the initiatives that were undertaken by the community itself. So
1: mm-hmm.
2: it did a few different things. I think it squared with the emphasis on surveillance in the previous chapter that we discussed and the mm-hmm. result of that surveillance. So, you know, it's it's one thing to collect information, but then what is it that a state does with that information? And we've seen throughout history that states can do a lot of different things with information and many of them are tragic and quite violent. In this instance, we see the state making um, a a pretty hard decision to try to relocate these um, different populations in order to sort of break up the networks of sociability and to enact some kind of control. And it also shows that um, this immigrant population, like every immigrant population, was really at the mercy of the state, right? Like not only from the standpoint of being allowed to stay or being deported, but also in terms of where they could actually live. You know, scholars more recently have started to talk about and started to use the term apartheid as it refers to the Banya around Mm -hmm. Paris. And I think that this is an example of the state dislocating populations and of isolating populations with the intent of sort of breaking up this community and, and isolating those within it. And so it's kind of a devastating chapter, I guess quietly mm-hmm. devastating in some ways, because it really shows that unlike what happens with Bosuet, where there's a concerted effort to treat tuberculosis and other diseases and to provide health care, here we actually see quite the opposite. There's a, a a policy that's quite detrimental to the community and quite detrimental to the immigrants who experience the relocations.
1: Let's talk about how you close the book, Gillian. Um, you know, you in this period at the end of the 1970s. And you kind of flash forward a little bit in the in the remaining pages that you have to the 80s, the 90s, and into the 2000s. So yeah, what happens after the period that is the focus of the book?
2: As I mentioned, in 1981, there's a law that's passed under the Mitterrand presidency where immigrants are now allowed to create political organizations. As I mentioned previously, they... Only citizens could do that. And so African Mm -hmm. immigrants got around that in a variety of ways because due to colonial citizenship laws, there were African immigrants in France who were French citizens, which goes back to the point I made about the murky nature of post-colonial citizenship status for African immigrants coming out of decolonization. So that's one thing that happens. And that then contributes to sort of a liberalization of the immigrant political sphere and the fact that immigrants could now create all kinds of organizations, and they do. And there are some really important political and social movements across the 1980s that reflect that. SOS Racisma is an example of one Mm -hmm. that was pretty famous. There are other moments that suggest that the situation continues to be very tenuous for various immigrant groups. And the 1998 strike at the Eglise St. Bernard reflects that. Across the 2000s, we have the riots that I mentioned in 2005, We have an increasingly strong uh, Ministry of Interior under Sarkozy when he was head of the Ministry of Interior that really cracks down on immigration. Um, Then we had Sarkozy as president, and we have even more cracking down on immigration. That then intersects with the terrorist attacks uh, that have happened over the past several years in France that have sort of heightened Uh, fear of immigrants, particularly those who are Muslim. And that um, is mirrored in the rise of the national front. As I mentioned, when we're talking about Obrevilliers, the 1970s are a pretty uneasy decade for France. I would say that the situation has been up and down in a lot of different ways in France around immigration, around the place of immigrants, around the memory of immigration around questions like integration and how that intersects with issues such as terrorism and ongoing debates and discussions about multiculturalism and the place of multiculturalism in a place like France. It's a really interesting moment globally. Um, It's a really interesting moment in France to sort of think about the path forward and how it is that various immigrant communities can be integrated into a society that doesn't necessarily want to address race or racism or Mm-hmm. racism in the past or the present and how it is that various immigrant groups can and do assert their agency and how they do influence state policy. And I think that when we look at the refugee crisis of today, which is now standing at 71 million people displaced over oh. a million refugees in the world, I think that what we see is that refugees, which are you know a, a group and a category of immigrants, can influence state policy and, and the position of different nation states this story really demonstrates that or at least hopefully it demonstrates that and so when i think about the current context even though sometimes i'm despondent i'm also hopeful that that immigrants themselves and refugees and other groups can partner with and dialogue with you know the societies in which they live and i think that that's what we see african immigrants doing in this story. And and I think that that is a sort of a hopeful place to be amidst a, a situation globally that can sometimes seem really overwhelming in a lot of different ways.
1: Well, Gillian, I have one last question for you, which is what are you working on now?
2: That is such an interesting question. I've been thinking about that <laughs> in anticipation for this interview. <laughs> I guess I see myself going in two directions, but I'm still kind of working through that. One direction is to write a biography of Sally Dongo, and I've sort mm-hmm. of taken some preliminary steps with that. One of the things that I find attractive in doing so is that there are all these published manuscripts that he wrote with other people, and I think it would be a great place to start. There also aren't that many immigrant biographies in French historiography, and so I think it would be really interesting to tell the story of an African immigrant with French citizenship who became this incredibly powerful spokesman who took on issues like housing and employment and literacy who went to places like Switzerland and traveled extensively and got into disputes with Leopold Senghor, the first president of Senegal, and just lived this really interesting life. He actually died the same year as Senghor did. And as I mentioned in the book, they were sometimes friends and sometimes enemies. Right. You know, he came to France during um, the late colonial era and stayed, as far as I can tell, into the 1980s. I don't know much about his life in Senegal and I don't know much about his life after he left France. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity there and I think it would be really interesting to pursue that. The second track I have actually um, is a really new area for me. I've worked on immigration for my entire academic career, as we talked about at the outset of the interview, but I've not really worked on refugees. And I talked a little bit about refugees uh, at the end of this podcast, and I've been teaching a class on migration and refugees as part mm-hmm. of what's called the Frankie Global Leadership Initiative at the University of Montana. And it's really opened my eyes to this category of immigrants that I hadn't thought much about, unfortunately. And it's it's happening for me academically in the midst of this global refugee crisis that I mentioned as well, and intersects with some of my work with some organizations in Missoula that are, actively working to resettle refugees here. So we have an active resettlement process going on in Missoula and we've resettled Mm. over 300 refugees, primarily from the Congo and Eritrea, but also from Iraq and Syria since 2016. So it's gotten me thinking about the history of refugees and I'm particularly interested in the history of refugees during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons for that is that I hear a lot of times people saying, well, refugees have only recently become a a partisan issue, that it was always (laughs) a a bipartisan issue in the U.S. I'm like, well, I don't know that that's really true. Because if you look at refugee policy for the U.S. and for other places during the Cold War, often refugees were welcomed if they were politically useful for the nation state that was welcoming them. And and one of the biggest examples of that is Cuban refugees coming to the U.S., mm-hmm. leaving Castro's regime amidst the Cold War, where the U.S. could say, look, people are fleeing this regime. We're going to help them because that's useful for us. So I don't really know what direction I will go. And I don't know if I will work specifically on French refugee policy or if I'll try to take more of a global approach. But it's something I've become really passionate about. And it, I think it it's really this opportunity to take some of the work that I've done on the ground with organizations here and apply it to my scholarship. And I've never really had the chance to do that. And it's, it also intersects with the fact that my community is actively working to resettle refugees. Mm -hmm. We're actually the only community, as far as we can tell in the U S that has gone to a resettlement agency and said, we want refugees to come here. Usually a resettlement agency says, okay, we're going to resettle refugees here. But in this case, It was a group of women in a book club who said, we would like to resettle refugees here. How do we do that? And the International Rescue Committee said, oh, we can do that. We were here in the 1970s and 1980s resettling Hmong refugees. So those are the two tracks of inquiry, I guess I would say, that I'm looking at. And both are pretty big projects. And Mm -hmm. so hopefully one or both will take um, in the next couple of years. That's my hope.
1: We did just finish this, so <laughs> you can take some time to decide, but thank they both you. sound like really fascinating paths, and I hope you'll keep me posted on, on which one you pursue next or both or whatever. Um, Gillian, I, just, I learned so much from this book, and I just want to thank you so much for writing it and for joining me.
2: Oh, thank you so much. It was truly my honor and my privilege to be here today, so thank you.
1: You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast series on the New Books Network.